0: back with another episode of Midnight on Earth. I'm your host, Jake Weaver, and we're here to bring you more knowledge, more lights, and more love. We're going to have an incredible episode today. Today, we're going to be delving into the history of psychedelia and listening to two different lectures from one of the icons, the pioneers of psychedelia, Timothy Leary, somebody I know I would love to have on the show, but alas, he has left this dimension and he's not here. So we're going to learn what he has to say and we have with us Bryn Anderson in the studio. She's going to listen with us of Vinyl Force Herbs. She's going to listen with us as we learn from Timothy Leary. But first, I need you to do something for me. Follow me on Instagram. If you haven't done it already, so many people have, but so many people haven't because there's 10 billion people on the planet and I don't have that many followers on Instagram. So I guess I have to keep telling people, follow me on Instagram at midnight underscore on underscore earth. That's the address. Spotify, of course, follow us there. If you haven't already, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you go to get your podcasts, follow us. I really appreciate it. And of course, please tell a friend, a family member, people you know that like podcasts, tell them about this podcast because it's fun, it's enlightening, and it gets better every episode. And it's developing as we speak. Things are happening, how this movement, this community, this podcast develops, it's all happening before your eyes. You're witnessing it. You get to be a part of it. And so could they. So please uh tell a friend, midnightonearth.com. And now we talk about Timothy Larry, but I just want to say hello to Bryn Anderson. How are you doing today, Bryn?
1: I'm doing well. Thanks for having me today. This will be fun.
0: Thank you for joining us again in the studio. We're going to listen to this very rare lecture from 1964. And then we're going to listen to a lecture from 1992. Both lectures are kind of at certain points in Timothy Leary's life. One being, of course, towards his rise to international popularity. And then in 1992 close to four years before he left this dimension, left his body. So it's kind of cool to have that juxtaposition to see that polarity of the different points in this person's life, this figure that influenced so many people. And he's done so much. I've read a lot of his books. I've watched tons of his videos over the years and listened to lectures like the ones we're going to listen to today. And he's an amazing mind. He, Definitely left his mark on this planet. I mean, everyone pretty much knows who he is and what he's associated with. And I think that's pretty f- profound. And of course, his partner in love, I'm not even going to say partner in crime, his partner in love and helping to manifest the psychedelic renaissance of the 60s was, of course, Richard Alpert, a.k.a. Ramdas. He was his partner at Harvard when the LST explosion took off, and there was so much of that going on. So first, let me just get his bio here. Timothy Leary was a psychologist, Harvard professor, countercultural figure in the 1960s who gained fame through his promotion of psychedelic drugs as tools for the expansion of consciousness. After becoming embroiled in legal battles and serving prison time in the 70s, Leary became a lecturer and futurist in later life, becoming interested in human life extension and things like computers, advanced technology, and space colonization. He passed away of prostate cancer in 1996, unfortunately. He probably had a lot more life had prostate cancer had not affected him. However, Everything happens the way it's supposed to happen. So who am I to say what's what? But what do you think about that, Bryn? Timothy Leary.
1: Yeah, I think it's cool that you uh, found an early lecture and a late lecture. It'll be cool to see. Yeah, and we'll uh, talk. uh,
0: Sorry to interrupt you. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. I was going to say, we'll talk in the middle. We'll listen to the first one, and then we'll talk about the things that he said, and then we'll go into the next one. Both super humorous, both super funny. We've we've got a lot more interview episodes coming up. I felt it was a good idea to do one more, hang out with Jake, hang out with his friend Brent. We're sitting down, we're talking, we're getting to know each other, we're learning together. We can do one more of these episodes, we'll get on to some more interviews after this. We've got a great lineup coming up. So here we go. This is from... 1964 at the Cooper union in New York city. And the lecture is called how to use your head. So this is Timothy Leary and we're just going to fade in as they're introducing him. And then they bring him out on stage after the applause. So here we go. Timothy Leary, how to use your head.
2: He is author of psychedelic, Experience, and also 27 essays and articles on psychedelic drugs. And uh, frankly, as Director of Adult Education, I'm very happy to welcome Mr. Timothy Leary to the Cooper Union Forum speaking on hallucinogenic drugs or how to use your head. Mr. Leary. Ooh,
0: ooh, Leary. <laughs>
2: This lecture on how to use your head could be summed up in one sentence. You have to go out of your mind to use your head. Now with that, I should go home but uh, there's a 58 minute radio tape that has to be filled, so I'll go on for a little more time. My aim tonight is to try to present the most important message you've ever heard. Now this aim, quixotic as it may seem, is to change your view of man and maybe your view of yourself. I know it sounds grandiose, but this aim is not, because it's nothing new. We're going to be talking about the oldest problem, the oldest mystery which man has faced, and what I'm going to say, again, is the oldest message in human history. Now, this lecture could be given in hundreds of metaphorical, literary, philosophic, scientific languages. I'm going to try tonight, though, to uh, present this story in terms of a mystery novel, a detective story, because I think that uh, it's the greatest scientific, philosophic, mystery story in history. And it all has to do with an incredible robbery, the greatest confidence game in history, the greatest loss of treasure that we can conceive of, the most successful cosmic swindle, and the victims, you and I, don't even know we've been robbed or maybe have only the dimmest suspicion that uh, something has happened to us. Let me describe the incredible nature of the crime. At birth, the human being is presented with an extraordinarily valuable gift, an instrument magical and intricate and powerful beyond belief, a camera with literally billions of lenses. I'm talking, of course, about the human brain. Neurologists tell us that the brain contains between 10 and 13 billion nerve cells. Now, of course, that's a ridiculous statistic. Uh, The human mind just can't grapple with the concept 10 billion. But to make matters worse, neurologists tell us that any one brain cell can be hooked up with as many as 25,000 other cells. So that what you're dealing with is a matrix, a network, a, a computer, the number of associations of which, uh, again, are stupendous. Uh, we're told that the number of possible associations in the human brain at any one second is larger than the number of atoms in the universe. Neurologists tell us that the human brain fires off about 5,000 million signals a second. There's a tremendous amount of activity going on in the seven inches behind our forehead. There's a tremendous amount of information and a tremendous amount of awareness going on there. Your brain is aware of a thousand several thousand activities going on in your kidney at every one second. It's aware of what's going on in your liver. It's processing the most incredible kinds of chemical information, pH content, blood levels, sugar levels, oxygen, CO2. Your brain is aware of this uh, enormous amount of information. But we, that is, I, Timothy Larry, and each one of you is cut off, of course, from awareness of most of these processes. Now the gap between what the mind is aware of and the limits of consciousness within our head is the robbery that I mentioned before. Almost every culture and every religion, has some way of explaining how we lost this. And most cultures and most religions have some theories as to how to get it back. The Christian theology tells us that we lost it because of the sins of our forefathers. Eastern philosophies tell us that it's there inside and we can get it back and that most of the things we see going on outside are maya or processes that uh, tend to pull us in to uh, external awareness and preventing us from enjoying and understanding this fantastic kaleidoscopic series of activities within. And almost every religion has produced a method for expanding consciousness or for recapturing what we've lost. According to the monotheistic religions, the Judeo-Christian and Islamic theories, There's a judge up there that will give it back to us if we follow his book and do what his lawyers tell us to do. Eastern religions and Eastern psychologies have, of course, a wide variety of methods for expanding consciousness, for getting back the potentials which we've lost. And even most primitive cultures have developed some sort of myths, heroic uh, sagas, which suggest how man has tried to recover the lost treasure. Now, in taking this eccentric position of taking the brain seriously, you run the risk of getting out of touch with your professional colleagues But there are some comforts because you're admitted to another club, which is one of the oldest scientific and philosophic associations in history, which has been going on for centuries and for thousands of years, the long line of people who've had some suspicion that there's a lot more than we've been led to believe. Now, the present time is a very exciting time for the members of this club because uh, there have been three developments very recently in science which have suggested new metaphors, new ways of explaining this mystery and new methods for rediscovering lost treasure these three developments are first the uh, recent findings about the genetic code second and more important for us who are alive today the research on the process of imprinting which is the way the nervous system is structured early in the life of any species and third the development of of the psychedelic drugs. I want to talk about the genetic code and its implications for the expansion of consciousness. We're focusing here on the question, um, why did we lose access to all this consciousness which resides within? and who did it. And I'm going to suggest for metaphorical purposes that's the genetic code which has so designed the nervous system as to rob man temporarily of access to his own head. Now, of course, the first thing you have to do in cracking a mystery is to put yourself in the place of the criminal. You have to find the motive for the crime. So I'm going to ask you to think with me as to what the genetic code's game is. Now, of course, this has always been a very impious thing to do. When man tries to figure out what God's game is, or when The human mind, which is a fragment of the nervous system, attempts to figure out what the genetic blueprint is up to because it's the genetic blueprint which designed and produced the brain and the mind that's trying to figure it out. So we're in a ridiculous position, but um, let's try it. Now from the standpoint of the strategy of the genetic material, every living species is simply a creative solution to a packaging problem. (laughs) Every single-celled organism, every lower form of life, every fish in the sea, every form of vegetation, every mammal, including man, is an original design, a packaging design to meet the particular environmental problems that that species faces in the air, under the earth, in the water, on land. Now when you get to the more complicated forms of life like mammals, the packaging problem is really incredible because the mammalian body or the human body is an enormously intricate machine to get this simple task done. Now the genetic code, as I imagine it to operate, faces a very tricky problem here, and here's the problem. In order to get the, um, in order to keep the mammalian body going, you have to have a nervous system which coordinates and registers uh, all the information that's going on inside this incredible machine and outside around us. The brain has to be aware of uh, billions of uh, events which occur from moment to moment. But the pilot of this seed, this mobile seed carrying package, obviously, can't be tuned in on all of this activity. Because if you and I were aware of this kaleidoscope of events inside, we'd be so ecstatic, we'd be so engulfed, we'd be so amazed, we'd be so delighted that we'd simply stand still and never move uh, in wonder and awe and uh, ecstasy, and we wouldn't pilot our uh, package through the jungles of uh, New York. to, uh, keep the genetic codes game going. So you see the strategy. Somehow there has to be a pilot stuck way, way, way up in a crow's nest. thinks he has a very important role in the whole operation, but actually down below there's this uh, enormous uh, ship with this mobile uh, factory moving along, which uh, really uh, pays no attention to um, what's going on in the crow's nest. The reason that the human mind is cut off from most of the brain's activity uh, seems to have logical, strategic meaning to the problem that the genetic code faces. And this I suggest is the why of the great neurological robbery. Next, I want to discuss the how of the robbery. The way the genetic code solves this problem is through the process of imprinting. And this is the second great discovery of the last 15 years, which we're convinced may well change man's view of himself. Now the research on, on imprinting has been done by scientists called ethologists. These are men who study animal behavior and animal learning in the very early hours of the organism's uh, history. Um, And they've come up with some remarkably uh, interesting findings in the last few years. The first finding is that very early in the first hours or the first days of almost every bird and mammal species there's what's called a critical period. This is a period when the nervous system seems to be sensitive and vulnerable and open to uh, registering certain environmental events and imprinting them. This critical period which has been fairly well studied for many species uh, ends and after the critical period the process of imprinting can no longer take place. Now let me give you an example. In the case of uh, most birds let's take uh, for example ducks The duck usually, the baby duck usually imprints the first object that moves and makes noise. And uh, any object which moves and makes noise during the critical period will then be followed. And all of the instinctual machinery inside the duck's body will then be uh, focused on this first imprinted object. Now, of course, in almost every case, the first moving object that makes noise that the baby duck experiences is the mother. And that's great because uh, the baby duck imprints the adult of its species and then is hooked on the duck game. (laughs) But if you remove the mother duck before the critical period, which uh, I think in the case of ducks last say between the 12th and 20th hour of, um, of uh, the baby's life, if you remove the mother and substitute any other object uh, which moves and makes noise, the duck will imprint that. One of the most amusing and somewhat horrifying studies which have been done by ethologists is uh, that baby ducks were presented during this critical period with a large round orange basketball, which led to the pathetic picture of the baby ducklings following the basketball as it was pulled or towed around the room. Uh, to uh, test whether imprinting has, take, whether it has taken place, you repeat the imprinting sequence uh, after the critical period. In this case, uh, the d- baby duck was put in a Y maze and the left-hand part of the Y-Maze was a nice round fluffy mother duck, and then the right uh, arm of the Y-Maze was an orange basketball. The ducks were imprinted on the basketball, took one look at the mother duck, and followed the orange basketball. (laughs) This is both funny and tragic because it raises the question, in the case of the human being, What accidental orange basketballs have you and I been exposed to early in life?
0: Now there's one
2: fascinating aspect of of imprinting, which is tremendously relevant to the psychedelic experience, and for that matter to other interpretations of the psychedelic experience, like the religious, and that is that is that imprinting has to do with external objects, and the trick of the genetic code in setting up the strategy of imprinting was to get our attention on things out there, and on one particular thing out there. Then, of course, once you imprint something, once you imprinted your orange basketball, then the process of learning, which psychologists study, took over, conditioning, so that first there was the orange basketball and then you found that the orange basketball uh, had a bottle, and then you uh, knew that every time uh, you heard footsteps on the floor, the orange basketball was there with the bottle. And slowly, step by step, through conditioning, reinforcement learning, so forth, uh, you built up the very complicated structure uh, that you now have as a socialized human being. Uh, But uh, the suggestion is that this all started uh, was based on an original imprinting experience, an, acts, uh, an irreversible biochemical process engraved on your nervous system. Now, the, uh, the, the science of imprinting is uh, getting quite complicated. and I, I'm always tempted to go into imprinting experiments because they have such tremendous relevance for the human situation. You see, if you keep the baby duck in a, uh, in a um, dark box, during this critical period, after the 20th hour, if you take the box out, the baby duck will just wander around aimlessly and will open up its beak to be fed at any noise, will try to copulate it when it gets older with any uh, moving object. Uh, uh, it's helpless in a survival sense. There's some evidence from human beings, although there's been almost no scientific studies in printing, that little babies who have had no human object around during the early hours. Uh, develop into um, what's called childhood schizophrenics. That is, they can never get any contact with a human being. And when human beings try to uh, uh, contact these little babies, uh, it's just like the mother duck attempting to contact uh, that uh, little baby duck that uh, is off following a basketball. A most eerie and disturbing experience to watch. Now, according to the ethologists, imprinting is a biochemical engraving of the nervous system which is irreversible. (coughs) From the standpoint of the genetic code, the genetic code plays the game of statistics with us. It knows that, uh, in most cases, we will imprint adults in our species, and then if we model ourselves and learn from that imprinted object, the chance that we'll grow up to be like our parents who are successful enough from standpoint of the genetic code that they had us, and so the game can keep going. <coughs> but the, uh, the um, most relevant point for our discussion tonight is that once this imprinting has taken place, the nervous system has been frozen. There's that snapshot of the duck, and you can be conditioned to relate other things uh, to that orange basketball, but uh, uh, the uh, general feeling is that uh, imprinting is irreversible. Of course, there's one other disturbing thing about imprinting. I'm convinced that if you ask the baby duck, now, come on, why is it that you chase that uh, cold uh, plastic basketball when you could uh, chase that nice fluffy mother duck? The duck would probably have 31 good logical rational reasons why. After all, orange is a nicer color. uh, There's no, uh, it's more, uh, it's cleaner. (coughs) You can't get venereal disease. uh, Keep the birth rate down. At times, it seems to us that one of the functions of the mind is to rationalize and protect uh, an accidental early imprint. Another interesting aspect of imprinting is that it can be affected, postponed, delayed, influenced by drugs. For example, reserpine uh, can postpone period of imprinting if uh, baby ducks are kept or baby birds are kept on on reserpine. Uh, Then long after the time when the critical period is over, uh, imprinting can take place. This, of course, has uh, implications for uh, other drug approaches to this problem. I'm suggesting then that imprinting is the method that the genetic code uses to focus the attention of the pilot of this mobile seed carrying package on certain aspects of the environment, which statistically will uh, teach it how to uh, survive. But what this means is that the genetic code has preempted about 99.999% of your brain and my brain for its purposes and has left us with this 0.0001% for us to play out our uh, chessboard on. Ellis Huxley has a very uh, uh, interesting thing to say about that. Uh, He made the comment that uh, he finds it amusing and uh, altogether uh, admirable that 99% of his brain didn't know that Aldous Huxley existed. (laughs) (coughs) Having suggested the why and the how of this neurological robbery, I want to move next to what we think is the new solution. Now, of course, imprinting is simply a term. It's a metaphor. Uh, What we ask of any metaphor or any theory in science is, first of all, how much of the data or how many different uh, findings, how many different fields does it tie together? Uh, The imprinting metaphor is interesting because it ties together ethology, uh, neurology, uh, pharmacology, and we think uh, psychology. The second thing you ask of any metaphor or any a new theory is uh, how practical is it? And uh, as I hope to point out later, we think there are uh, very practical implications of the imprinting theory for uh, man's use of his head. We suggest that psychedelic drugs may be seen as chemical agents which temporarily suspend your old imprint. That is, we think that most of us go through life interpreting and experiencing everything in terms of some very tired old snapshots which were imposed upon us maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago. And the job of our mind is to relate every new experience in life to some object or some um, person on that tired old snapshot. So that every new uh, woman you meet is usually seen in terms of uh, a chain of uh, other women back to whatever woman was in your original imprint if you were lucky to have a woman in it (laughs) now there are many reasons why we think that it's useful to uh, Uh, Conceive of the psychedelic drugs as suspenders of imprinting, and one of them has to do with this uh, commitment, attachment of the imprinting uh, process to the external, because there's one thing that happens during an LSD session is that you tend to lose a lot of your uh, attachment to external events. It's perfectly uh, typical that during an LSD session the subject will lie for five or six hours completely silently, not moving around, and perhaps even with their eyes closed which has led in the past some psychiatrists to say, aha, LSD causes catatonic uh, stupors. (laughs) But then when you ask the person what was going on during that five or six hours when you didn't move, uh, were you in a stupor or a coma? And the person says, coma? More was going on in any one second of that period than uh, uh, in any month of my life before. the point is, and this, of course, is the tricky point, that the commitment to the external orange basketball is temporarily lost, which can be an ecstatic liberation or it can be a terrorizing paranoia, depending upon how much you understand about uh, the possibilities of your mind. Now, there's another interesting line of evidence which uh, kind of focuses in here. And this is the evidence from a line of studies of psychologists uh, the last few years, which is called sensory deprivation. <laughs> the word sensory deprivation is an amusing one because what psychologists mean by sensory deprivation, that word deprivation is a, was a tricky one, is that if you put a person in a dark room where there's not any noise or any stimulation and you keep him there for several hours, Uh, After this period of time, strange things begin to happen. Uh, He begins to have have hallucinations, Uh, he begins to develop paranoias, or he begins having a wonderful time. Um, (laughs) Of course, most of these studies have been done with uh, Air Force pilots or uh, very outgoing Americans. (laughs) When they're separated from their orange basketball for more than one hour, <laughs> when they're separated from their orange basketball for more than one hour, they begin to bang their heads against the wall. On the other hand, what sensory deprivation is, of course, is one of the oldest techniques of getting out of your mind to use your head, uh, which has ever been known—the monastic cell. The monk in the desert, uh, the uh, yoga who uh, turns off the external world, and so forth. Uh, So, the same phenomena which to an American psychologist causes psychosis, to most of the rest of the world, is seen as one of the royal roads to uh, using your head. There's an amusing story about Gerald Heard, the 70 year old uh, British philosopher, who's a tiny little man who went running around the country uh, several years ago looking for a psychiatric research center where he could jump in one of these sensory deprivation bats and take LSD and uh, use his head. <laughs> now, so far, the notions of imprinting and psychedelic drugs uh, may be interesting, but uh, the implications are not uh, terribly dramatic. When I present this theory to psychiatrists, they would say, yes, that makes logical sense, but we could say the same thing in psychoanalytic terms, that uh, you work the chain of associations back to the original traumatic event or the original primal scene, and then uh, the the task is, uh, of course, to understand that and do something about it. The way the analysts do it is they try to get back to the original imprint. And then by having you fall in love with the analyst, uh, you try to build up another imprint. Uh, this is not, I'm not saying that critically. I think that the, the, the Freudian theory, the psychoanalytic theory of uh, free association to get back to the original event and uh, the transverse neurosis to get out of that or get a new imprint is one of the most brilliant uh, models ever developed by man. By man. And I'm, I'm really breathless in admiration. And the more I understand about imprinting, the shrewder and the more creative I see that Freud was. Uh, He was a brilliant man. Uh, But the thing which excites us these days is the corollary concept of psychedelic re-imprinting. Now, this is a, a very complicated and promising notion. Our concept of the brain at present is that uh, you and I have been presented at birth with this 13 billion cell camera uh, with the possibilities of shooting motion pictures all the time, but because of the genetic code and imprinting, we've been frozen with one snapshot. We think that the psychedelic drugs can suspend the old snapshot uh, and anyone who's had LSD will perhaps empathize that I describe someone's experience as your neurological camera tumbling uh, in a million different directions, any uh, half hour, shooting all sorts of film that uh, you had never uh, thought possible before, and then very slowly, over a period of 8 or 10 or 11, 12 hours, uh, uh, slowing down and eventually uh, coming to rest, maybe after 16 hours. But we think that you come to rest with a new snapshot. Now, there's nothing that I'm saying about imprinting or LSD or re-imprinting which is either positive or negative. I'm not here to sell LSD (laughs) or to sell you on your brain. The more you think about the psychedelic experience in terms of neurological photography, you see that you can take beautiful pictures or you can take miserable pictures. You can take frightening pictures, you can take holy pictures, you can take any kind of pictures. Uh, So that the challenge for psychedelic research at this point is to learn how to uh, use this incredible camera and uh, to uh, learn about lighting, kind of objects you want to take pictures of, and so forth. It's obvious, too, that uh, you don't lose your old imprint, because after an LSD session, you come back and you still speak English and you know how to uh, lace your shoes. Uh, As a matter of fact, that's one of the problems, that uh, too often we go back too readily to the old orange basketball with all its uh, correlated habits. And one of the paradoxes that uh, intrigued us at the beginning of our research four and a half years ago was, why is it that for eight hours a person can be shooting up there in uh, all sorts of cosmic revelations, uh, uh, great Buddha enlightenments, and then the next day we're back in the same old neurological straitjacket? Well, I think uh, this is easily explained, that the original orange basketball that you and I imprinted then, uh, through conditioning, uh, built up around it hundreds of thousands or millions of associations, so that every, all our language, all of our rituals, all of our behaviors, and so forth are connected with the original imprint. Whereas if, uh, if a man and his wife take LSD at sunset on their honeymoon, they take a wonderful new picture but uh, uh, the problem and the challenge is that, of course, they don't stay uh, in that situation but tend to uh, drift back to the old habits because there are no new habits uh, or take a long time to build up habits around a new imprint. Now, everything that we have learned and thought about re-imprinting in relationship to psychedelic drugs has led us to increase the cautions that we make about LSD. Uh, It's a very tricky proposition. And before, when we thought that a psychedelic session just lasted 12 hours and gave you a new view, but then brought you back, uh, uh, we... um, took chances in sessions that uh, by hindsight now we think are quite reckless because we think every time you have a psychedelic experience there's a possibility of taking new pictures which may be quite different from uh, your old pictures. And you should be very careful uh, with whom you take LSD and where you take LSD and uh, you should be very well prepared because you're likely to come out of the session, of course, with uh, a purple-colored football, (laughs) which may or may not cause problems when you go back to the office the next day, which is filled with orange basketballs. (laughs) Now that the cautions have been presented, uh, I feel it's possible to say something about the uh, potentialities or the promises of this uh, theory. If someone gave you a very valuable camera, how often would you use it? Or when would you use it? This, of course, is the question How do you use your head? How often are you going to use your head? How often are you going to take LSD? We often use the concept of uh, serial re-imprinting, and that one concept of man's existence, which might well take hold in the future, is that uh, uh, you have this neurological camera. You obviously should use it. Any anytime you're changing your environment, anytime you're taking a new job, anytime you're moving into a new neighborhood, anytime you're changing your interpersonal uh, network, anytime uh, you have uh, a new occupational task that uh, you, have, you, have, you want to have engraved and not connected to your basketball by a series of uh, associations, Any anytime you have some important change in your life you want to take a new snapshot. You don't want to take that old, tired uh, picture from the 10 or 15 years past and apply it in a new situation. Of course, there's a paradox here, because the question, how often should you reprogram your nervous system? How often should you take LSD? Um, It's your present uh, robot snapshot identity, which is deciding when it's going to change itself. And this accounts, I think, for the fear and the hesitation which almost all of us feel about a psychedelic drug session. Uh, I I think that anyone who doesn't experience at some moment during their psychedelic session an intense, awful fear uh, has been cheated by their psychiatrist or their bootlegger. One way of uh, deciding how often to take LSD in this utopian world of the future is uh, not to let your mind decide, because I'm suggesting that the genetic code wants our mind to be attached to externals and shuns the internal. Rather than letting your mind decide, why not let your body decide? And here's a fascinating aspect of uh, the pharmacology of LSD. You can't take S- LSD every day. That is, you can't keep your neurological camera just going uh, in this uh, kaleidoscopic uh, fashion uh, for more than 12 or 15 or 20 hours. There's what's called a refractory period. And if you take LSD today, you have to wait five, six, seven, or eight days before you can have uh, uh, another psychedelic effect. In other words, uh, if you suspend your snapshot, it takes maybe five or six days to uh, let the new snapshot kind of harden and it's five or six, seven days before you're back in a new robot situation. And then uh, uh, the nervous system is, is ready for uh, another reprogramming. So that uh, it may well be in the utopian world of the future that uh, LSD and similar uh, foods and chemicals will be, uh, Used just as uh, vitamins are use today, uh, and it's possible that uh, uh, every seven days you'll take LSD and bring your picture up to date. Now, uh, let me Time is running out for the radio program, and I'm going to rush to the conclusions. There are other things which uh, can be taken up in the question period uh, that I wanted to talk about. Um, the conclusions that we've come to after four and a half years of psychedelic research is that we know almost nothing about our own heads or how to use them. And anyone who tells you he knows much about LSD, of course he's really talking about the potentialities of his brain, should be listened to with great caution because a human species at this time is a very primitive uh, species which has just got this cortex only 40,000 years ago, and we're just now catching on to the possibility that we can use it. And so uh, it's going to take several thousand years, I think, before we'll have any clue as to how really to use this incredible machine. But conclusion number one is... Thank you. Are you a pessimist or an optimist? (laughs) Conclusion number one is that uh, the members of our research group have lost a lot of our zeal to uh, proselytize about the human brain or to uh, run large research projects or to get involved in any external politics uh, which would uh, attempt to uh, uh, raise money for research grants or to get LSD accepted by the FDA and so forth. Your main job and my main job is to save your own head and to save, uh, to learn how to use your head and learn how to use my head, or to use the, uh, the uh, religious metaphor. The real task is to save your own soul and for me to save my own soul. Because the trap is always to get caught in external programs, movements, publications, research grants, and so forth. The problem is always inside. And of course, this is the oldest message uh, uh, that man has uh, ever told himself. There's a second uh, conclusion, and that is that there seems to be a duty to report back. for those who have been engaged in internal explorations, uh, it's only fair, since we're all in the dark anyway, to, uh, to share any landmarks or uh, any uh, uh, points of interest uh, that uh, can be used for other travelers. And of course, that's what's been happening for centuries. And in our psychedelic research, we have relied on many maps uh, drawn by uh, men who made these voyages thousands of years ago. This book, The Psychedelic Experience, is based on the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which is an eminently practical LSD guide, although it's uh, 2,500 years old. The third conclusion is that as you detach yourself from so complete an investment in external gains, you come to appreciate your own body more. And uh, the, uh, the natural process more. I should clarify that uh, we talk so much about the brain that once uh, someone listening to us said that the more we talked about the brain, uh, she got the picture of, of my forehead getting higher and higher and my, my cranium is swelling, so that pretty soon it was this tiny little tendril of a body with this huge computer 13 billion cell camera on top. Uh, this is quite the opposite of what we, we mean. That those who have uh, worked with psychedelic uh, drugs uh, know that you become more and more aware of the infinity of possibilities uh, within your own body and uh, less obsessively concerned with um, some externals, which seem irrelevant. Another conclusion is uh, I think it's suggested by my early remarks. There's less and less interest in broad mass public activity and much more commitment to primary groups, uh, family groups, close uh, small groups of friends. Although the histories would have us think that all the important events in man's uh, life are elections and wars and uh, this sort of thing, you know and I know that all the meaningful things in our life take place in private and with either one other person or a very small group of people. It's always been that way. It's always been that way, and there's never going to be a large, federally supported research grant on psychedelics which is going to learn to teach you how to use your head or help me solve my spiritual problems. Let's not kid ourselves. Uh, Another conclusion is that, uh, and here um, I can't generalize. I'm talking about uh, the 30 or 40 people with whom I've been associated in this work. There's a much deeper appreciation for one of the oldest and most basic of human enterprises, and that is the male-female relationship. LSD is the most powerful aphrodisiac ever known to man. That's <laughs> interesting. Some clapped and some didn't. Let me explain what an aphrodisiac <laughs> is. <laughs> aphrodisiac comes from the Greek word for the goddess of love. Uh, an aphrodisiac is an agent which promotes love. And by aphrodisiac, I don't mean faster and more motions of robot bodies in uh, bedrooms. I'm, of course, talking about uh, the communication which can exist between people whose neurological cameras are uh, accelerated and uh, much wider and more open. In the future, utopian society I've been talking about Uh, A wife may be a little bit worried if her husband has an illicit sexual affair, but real grounds for divorce will be if he takes LSD with another woman. Uh, So here the mystery comes full circle because the paradox is that the more you use your head the more in tune we think you get with the original purpose and design and goal of the genetic code. Because uh, if there's anything the genetic code seems to want, it's to keep itself going. Uh, To keep the great game of life going. For your presence tonight, and for your attention, I thank you.
0: Yeah, and there he was, Timothy Leary. What an incredible lecture from 1964. It was really foundational because he was talking to these people. It was all new for those guys. 1964, The Summer of Love hadn't even happened yet. That was 67. So the whole LSD revolution was really just taking off. I mean, my God, the Grateful Dead, they weren't even around until 1965. So putting everything into perspective, that was a very early lecture in psychedelia by the master, the one and only Timothy Leary. What did you think about that, Bryn? You took a lot of notes this time.
1: <laughs> I always take a lot of notes.
0: <laughs> I know. You, these have been really fruitful, I think, lectures uh, that we listen to. But what? yeah, so, tell me what you thought. What do you think?
1: Well... One is I was just trying to picture his audience just thinking about in 1964 like who was gathering in the auditorium to listen to Timothy Leary I and think all half he was the saying. people
0: were all, were on psychedelics because of the way they were laughing.
1: Uh-huh, they did have that laugh. <laughs>
0: And then when, like, one person clapped or something, like, it made everybody laugh. And, it, and everybody they, clapped. They, they laughed like a f- flock of birds.
1: Right. Know. And the other thing I want to know is where are my uh, once-every-seven-day LSD vitamins? Because I and haven't... It's coming got- in
0: a utopian society. Oh, okay. That's when it's coming. Got it.
1: Um, yeah. So.
0: Well, what else? Let's hear some <laughs> of your other things.
1: I just like to write along with uh, when we're listening because it...
0: Well, the imprinting thing was really cool. The
1: imprinting was very cool. Because it makes
0: you think about how you come into this world, what you choose to use as your foundation when you interface with three-dimensional reality. Like where did the root of your choices come from? Who programmed the algorithm? Because part of it was you reacting to your environment and just like observation. But there was another part of it that came externally, it came from your parents or your guardians or from just people around you. And it's really interesting to see that they found drugs that can suspend that imprint in a way like LSD can for ducks anyway. I think it was called like recipine or something like that.
1: Yeah, I wrote that down. That was But
0: Reci- there's this ability for psychedelic drugs to reprogram your imprinting and to do it in a way that you choose versus a way that was... Just, yeah. You know, by birth, I guess. Mm
1: -hmm. Or just imposed upon you when you were just unconsciously or by matter of whatever your routine is during the day and the things you pick up that you're just unconsciously doing. One thing that I thought about when he was talking about the imprinting and the duck is that's something that's a very common theme in children's stories. It's like the duck that got imprinted on the dog or the you know, little chick that was imprinted on the elephant and ran around calling the elephant mommy for the whole rest of the children's story. Right. Um, but we you know, laugh about that with kids when we're reading it to them, but seldom do we think about the human imprinting and how we are all imprinted like that. And like he said, you could be imprinted on all kinds of... Plastic orange basketballs and not even realize it. And you would defend, you know, just like the little duck would defend all the reasons why the basketball was better than the fluffy duck mom. And that brings a whole other can of worms about how we can defend and be so certain about our position on something and not really even know the source or where it came from. That's yeah, the programming, is,
0: the programming is the so ingrained. It's so deeply rooted that you don't even realize that you were programmed because it happens so early on. And if you knew how you were programmed, you might not choose to be programmed in that way.
1: And you might, yeah, not choose to defend it either. It's really interesting. And then uh, at the very end, I thought it was also really interesting how he was talking about, you know, The external versus internal and how when we're making change within that that seldom happens at a a big group level. That it's more about each person going within and changing our programming within and all the different things that happen at that source level um, rather than a mass group. Although there's something to be said for, you know, like a Grateful Dead concert or sort of that mass consciousness when everyone is reprogramming themselves in one situation, even though everyone's experience is individual.
0: Yeah. And I think it's cool that he talked about the group that we are all a part of. It's the people that they have a suspicion.
1: (laughs) I like that club. I'm in that club for sure. There's a lot
0: more than, than we were led to believe. So let's go into the next part of our episode. This is from 1992. This is like a public access TV show called skip low looks at Hollywood. It was public access. 1992 skip low passed. Timothy Leary passed. This is a very strange and rare interview. So here we go. This is actually at the tail end of Timothy Leary's life. He passed away in 1996. So here we go. Action. Timothy Leary,
3: uh, grew up in Boston, Massachusetts. Is that where you grew
2: up? Uh, I spent my first 18 years in a very small town in uh-huh. western Massachusetts. Uh-huh. College where? In, uh I went to about seven colleges. Uh, I, actually I was expelled from several of them. I went to West Point for two years. I went to a Jesuit school. Uh-huh. I got my master's degree from Washington State University in Pullman. Right. And uh, then my doctorate in psychology at UC Berkeley.
3: Berkeley. Expelled from where? How, you say several. Expelled for what reason? Ask?
2: Well, I was uh, expelled from the University of Alabama for spending the night in the girls' dormitory. Now okay. you're going to ruin my reputation.
3: Go ahead, Timothy, I want
2: to know. You're going to go for the real uh, inside story. No, you say story. expelled, <laughs>
3: go ahead, like you several, but what expel, What else? For what other reasons? You said one for I girls? I was expelled
2: from a Jesuit school called uh, Holy Cross College uh, for um, uh, gambling, playing poker, blackjack oh. late at night during a uh, religious <sighs> retreat. With a son of an Italian mafia guy from uh, from New York,
3: <laughs> that got me they graduated me right there you've been outspoken ever since you were a con- uh, kid then really Timothy Leary's always been his own person, own mind, own spoken person
2: yes I, I lived a very uh, well I would say a lonely childhood. It was a very isolated little town, and i didn't uh, see much of the uh, sophisticated world, so I lived as a child an extraordinary life. I read books all the time, uh-huh. and I dreamed dreams of, uh, of doing heroic things to help the human race. And uh, my model, my idol, was a philosopher named Socrates, and right. uh, I based my entire life on Socrates. So that's where Timothy Leary... That, uh, he, he's, he's the guy that caused uh, all the trouble for me. His, his motto was, he said, that the aim of human life, Kippy, was to know thyself. Now this was very subversive, because the very idea of someone saying, you don't have a self, you're a, you're a serf, you're a slave, mm-hmm. he, was, uh, he was inventing the idea of individuality, ah. and that you could do something about your life. Now, as soon as I studied uh, the uh, books about salaries, I realized that this is a dangerous profession, because you're, you're teaching people to, uh, to get question into authority. Uh-huh. I realized that this job, which I was going to uh, undertake, the corrupting of the minds of youth—it paid poorly. You mm-hmm. could get you in serious difficulty with the authorities, and in, in the case of Socrates, it got him uh, hemlocked. Uh-huh. But uh, I've enjoyed this uh, profession, and in the last uh, seventy years in America, it's been a wonderful time. It has for a dissident philosopher, because so much change has happened that. Uh, do you I've think? Enjoyed.
3: Do you think the kids today know thyself? Because a lot of them don't. They don't have identifications of their own self they don't know who they are they just follow the leaders
2: ain't it the Con- truth it's been that way Am for I a, right? it's been that way for most human beings throughout most human history right At certain times in human uh, history culture right. when everything's favorable you know it's called a renaissance now they had one in athens because uh, athens was protected by geography from the big empires right there's another great, great um, uh, renaissance in uh, around venice and uh, in northern italy and mm-hmm. a renaissance Preaches the, the basic religion of humanism, right? Uh, Renaissance period. We had one in the 60s here, and the right. key to it was humanism. He said, "The aim of individual life is to know yourself and to treat each other as human beings," mm-hmm. and this flies in direct opposition to every fundamentalist religion, to every uh, political party right. who is right. supposed to uh, work for the, for God or for uh-huh. the uh, state. So, uh, uh, and what happens in a, in a Renaissance, we we, we sim- rediscover. The wonderful potential of the inner human being. Right. Uh, it becomes, uh, the clothes tend to come off because there's more uh, human contact and uh, beauty and, and erotic uh, activity is, uh, tends to be more uh-huh. active at this mm-hmm. period. So in the 60s, we had a classic Renaissance, which uh, ended in 1980 when the uh, repression of uh, right. Reagan and yeah. Bush came out. Well, we all know that's my right, history. Right, right.
3: Berkeley. Went to Berkeley.
2: I went there for four years,
3: and I taught. And you taught? For about four years at Berkeley, yeah. Philosophy. Psychology. Psychology. But that's really philosophy, too, isn't it? Really? Yes, Psychology, but, uh, philosophy. Yeah, You know, of course, to be a uh, good psychiatrist or... D- you know, go ahead. I agree with you. I agree with you, Skippy. So what do you think? You were there in the 60s, or... or was it the 60s you were there? When were you there? In
2: no, I, I was a graduate student at uh, Berkeley, Berkeley from the 1940s. Really? 50. Okay. And I taught around Berkeley and did research there as, as a faculty member and a researcher for about nine years. I left Berkeley basically to go to Harvard in 1959.
3: You went to Harvard
2: for how long? As, as, a, te- as a, a teacher. As a faculty, member. a faculty
3: member. When did this all begin for Timothy Leary, this Creating of LSD. When did all of that start? Well, I didn't create LSD. Well, uh, you did something about it. They all think you are the creator, but you're not. I know you're not. Uh, Experimental.
2: I I don't know anything about chemistry at all.
3: Yeah.
2: uh, I'm now involved in computers, and I can hardly turn my own computer on. I I try to use these tools as ways of increasing intelligence and getting to operate your mind and your brain. To be intelligent, to know thyself, Mm -hmm. you have to learn how to operate your mind and your brain. And uh, there's. We don't
3: use it enough. People use it just this much, yeah, mm-hmm. and there should be, there's to be a lot there. Tell me more about that.
2: Well, of course, uh, most schools do not teach young people to think for themselves. The idea is to most schools indoctrinate, to train you to to play your part in a factory society, or to you're going to be a lawyer and you'll be a doctor, and you've got to be a, a crook because the cops. We have to have cops and crooks. So they, there are all these roles that are being taught right in schools. But rarely, I w- there are a lot of good teachers out there, and I'm sure. Uh, are there watching, really, Timothy? There are many teachers out there, particularly now. People that went through the '60s, when thinking for yourself was popular and almost authorized. Yes. There are a lot of good teachers out there that are doing their best to encourage and stimulate uh, their students to think for right, themselves. For themselves. are '60s kids
3: that are now. Uh, that's what I, th- I have always thought for myself ever since I was a kid. Uh, that's why i like you. I'm an individual. I'm, yeah. me, I'm me, I'm me. I've there ain't just... nobody like Skippy No, well. but I'm just saying, Timothy, yeah. I've always been me. That's why I've always that's... liked you, Skippy. Did you? Is that right? <laughs> so tell me more about the LSD. Uh, what happened there? You 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 started something there with that uh, creation? Did a lot of pot and everything uh, else? I didn't well, start
2: anything. The use of uh, certain uh, botanical vegetable substances psychotropic to right. activate the brain. That's been going on for thousands of years. It that has been. It, Socrates and that whole group of Plato and uh, the Lucinian Mysteries, they were using marijuana, hashish, and opium. Uh-huh. The use of uh, drugs or vegetables to uh, activate your brain, to open up new uh, circuits of your brain, that's, uh-huh. that's c- called shamanism. And uh, m- many say that most of the religions and much of the philosophies come from groups. Mm-hmm. Like the group around uh, uh, Socrates. Socrates, yes. Uh, at Harvard University, because now we've been a long tradition, an old tradition, really, of the use of psychedelic drugs. Uh, at Wal- Harvard. Ralph Waldo Emerson uh-huh. started what was called American Transcendentalism, uh-huh. flying in the in the face of the Puritan ethic in Boston. Emerson was banned from Harvard in Boston for about thirty years, longer than I was. Really. Yeah, and then at the same time, uh, there was an active. Uh, use of, uh, of uh, psychoactive drugs by uh-huh. British uh, poets. Uh, uh. Then uh, William James, who founded the psychology department at Harvard, wrote a book called The Varieties of Religious Experience, in which he talked about his experiences with hashish and, uh, uh-huh. and nitrous oxide. Right. So uh, when I went there, uh, I was joining a long club of honorable and very distinguished philosophers who believed in transcendence. Or basically, they were humanists, as opposed to the engineer tradition right. of MIT, or the puritanical uh, fundamentalist uh, tradition of Christianity. Right, right, right.
3: But in 1970, five years—they gave you five years prison for
0: well, actually, for a little
3: abuse of marijuana. I didn't. Uh, Is it just for a little marijuana? Five years. Well, they said you for more, more than, than
2: five. five. I it was, was. I was sentenced to both federal and state prison for. Could have totaled thirty
3: years. Thirty? But you didn't spend thirty years. Well,
2: I escaped after nine months. Uh, You did?
3: You didn't know that? No, I didn't know.
2: What do you mean you escaped? I trained, trained, trained very carefully, and I I climbed a wire and climbed a wall, and I was met by a a, a guerrilla outlaw group, and I got political asylum in Algeria, and...
3: um, How long were you in Algeria?
2: uh, About nine months. I was there with the Black Panthers, and then I went to... uh, Spots with them. the Black
3: Panther. Oh, bla- you, you haven't no, that,
2: read my book, Not you?
3: really, no, I haven't. I've got not a, your book. I've, got uh, a,
2: no. a, uh, I've written several unauthorized autobiographies. Right, yeah. right.
3: I'm not too and, familiar uh, with your book. Yeah, so
2: I I've got one called Flashbacks. You right. can get it in the bookstores right now. Uh-huh. It's got the whole sordid story there, and that's being made into a movie now uh, by uh, Interscope. Uh, okay. A brilliant young man named Bima Stagg, who's writing a script about oh. my life.
3: So tell me more about being with the Black Panther uh Algeria and then from there you went to uh you've well, to prison to Did you go back to prison I had to escape from
2: uh actually Algeria because Algeria was a socialist fundamentalist Islamic country and that's no barrel of lass
3: no I know it uh,
2: communism now. and uh Islamic fundamentalism right I literally had to escape I spent some time in Switzerland and then I was captured by the DEA. In Where, in Af- Switzerland? No, in Afghanistan, uh-huh. at the airport, and brought back, and I did about three and a half, all, all together I did four and a half years in prison for the possession of uh, two roaches of marijuana.
3: Four and a half years? Mm-hmm. So it really turned your life around, didn't it? Uh, from a professor in Harvard, and running, escaping. Uh, what did you do the four and a half years in prison, Timothy Leary? What did Timothy Leary actually thought about? What did well, you I do? tell you,
2: I, I, I used the, that time wisely. I enjoyed it. I, now, I'm not advocating... Did you enjoy it? I'm not advocating prison, boys and girls, but uh, uh, I found it interesting and an educational experience for me to be a psychologist at the very bottom of the prison system, because after I escaped, they were really angry at me. and They put me at the bottom, and I had... Uh, I got a view of society. You know, when you get down to the bottom, you really see how the uh, police state operates. Uh, also, I love being in prison because I didn't have to pay the rent. <laughs> I didn't have to answer the telephone. Uh-huh. I didn't have to produce erections, you know, uh, uh-huh. on a regular basis. Uh, uh-huh. it's just a joke, right?
3: Right. I know. <laughs> uh,
2: and when I was in solitary confinement, I liked that best because, uh, you know, why? Why? My roommate was a very funny guy. He kept me entertained all the time.
3: Was he? <laughs> yeah. Is he still there, or is he out now? That's me. My mirror. You're your roommate? Yeah. Oh, you. Yeah. I see your mirror. Okay. That's the, You're joke. Mirror. I That's the, the joke. I know the mirror. You you you're a funny man. You know Thank that. You. Thank you. Uh, you're you're actually doing a stand up comedy too. Uh, kind no, of thing. No, I don't thing. do
2: stand up. Well, uh, i I give my you... college lecture, but I give it. Uh, in it's comedy,
3: and comedy flair. No, no. It's,
2: I make fun of authority. I make fun of. I, I'm very. Oh, no, that's,
3: that's comedy. That's fun. Yes,
2: but I'm not a stand up. No, I'm not. Right I, I don't, don't, don't tell dick jokes. You know. No, don't no, don't know. no. We don't stand can, that. Can I say dick on this program?
3: Yes, of course you can.
2: But I
3: understand that. Yeah,
2: I don't. I don't do that kind of stand up. I. I tried to mercilessly make fun of uh, uh, Christianity and Islam right, and uh right. politicians. So that's just part of my job as a, as a dissonant philosopher.
3: What happened after you got out of prison, the day you arrived out of prison? Uh, first of all, what prison were you in? At which one?
2: I was in 49 jails and prisons in four continents. Really? Yeah.
3: I came moved after
2: my uh, release. I was released from California when Jerry Brown became uh, governor. Mm-hmm. And I got there was released from federal uh, prison uh, after Reagan was thrown out. Right. I'm sorry, uh, Nixon, uh-huh. 1976. And when uh, I came to uh, Hollywood, and I've been involved in communication, and computers and electronics, and
3: uh, immediately, is this what ran through uh, your mind in jail when you were preparing for this when you got out? The computers? Yes, I'm a
2: great follower of a man named Marshall McLuhan who wrote those wonderful books about communication, and he right. said that. Uh, if you want to change a culture, if you want to change yourself, if you want to change religion, right. change the medium, the mode of communication. And he said that Gutenberg created Protestantism when he had, had the Mass Assemble book right. that everybody could read. And now the new form of communication is electronics. So I'm a fanatic about electronics. My brain...
3: Electronic brain, Juergen. Uh-huh. Aren't you in electronic brains experiments right now? You're Yes, into. that's right, yeah. Tell me about that.
2: Uh, maybe we should. Uh, I, I don't give lectures anymore. And uh, okay, the next you don't? two the next two um uh, Monday nights at Easy TV, Easy TV, Easy EZT
3: on, on uh, Santa Monica Boulevard. Santa Monica
2: Boulevard. Right I know it. La yes, off The of Right. And uh, that's in Santa Monica Boulevard between uh, La Cienega and San. Vicente. That's in West Hollywood. We're having a wonderful time because we're, uh, we're each Monday night we invite uh, geniuses, wizards uh, in this new field. huh. Of electronic multimedia, and uh, we produce—we're learning how to produce trance states by using uh, uh-huh. computer-generated images and electronic patterns. Uh-huh. Matter of fact, why don't we put on this little tape now? To Do show you have a—you
3: you have a tape right now. You and brought. this is a
2: commercial, uh, like a uh, commercial you see on TV, and we're at the, uh, the message from the pro- uh, the product, right. the message from the sponsor is: learn how to use your eyeballs and operate your brain. So uh, let's run the. Use tape. Use your
3: mm-hmm. eyeballs
2: and yeah, learn I how like to that. use that, your eyeballs. eyeballs. Yeah.
3: Hmm. Interesting. Let's see it. Okay.
0: I guess you guys can't what is that see about? this. But see, the eye, that,
2: That's the. Eyes uh, flashing. In a dark room, this could. Uh huh. Indeed, when we do it in a dark room at EZ TV, it's right. Uh-huh. The state. uh Huh. And then my voice comes over it, and I'm saying, uh, the eyes are the windows of your brain. Uh huh. Who controls your eyes controls and programs your brain. Right. And all eyes love the illuminated. Eyes love dazzle, eyes love diamonds, glitter. Eyes today and brains love electrons. Who controls your screen, controls your brain. Uh We're developing methods for the individual, a kid in the third world, or a kid in the inner city school, learns how to control what's on her screen. Operate your brain, program your own brain. Use the methods of modern advertising, trailers and commercials to put your own message on your brain. Right. Otherwise, you'll be programmed by the wizards to control commercials on your television set. Is this
4: relaxing (laughs) people to
2: this? Well, they're trying to jumble you and scramble your brain. Uh Basically, my brain, most brains love to jumble with electrons. Do they really? Oh, sure. It's
3: Stimulate them? Is that stimulation? There's been
2: a rumor for centuries that some guy, I mean, tough male yeah. macho, you know, dazzle the diamond in some young girl's eyes, right. she'll wash his socks forever, because diamonds are a girl's uh-huh. best friend. Hey, cool. Wrong. Diamonds give power to those people who know how to use them. Oh. And now uh, electrons. So we're teaching people, we're developing new computer programs, running off CD-ROMs, running off Nintendos. Where do you get this
3: idea from? It's all out there. It's all it out is there. Out yeah. there? Yeah. but these, these s- are not my ideas. What sort of persons, what sort of persons attract to Timothy Leary? What sort of person uh, attracts Leary? Uh, t- uh, intelligent people. I know people yeah. with minds and they want to be their own persons. But what sort of person? Well people,
2: I, mean, I can tell you who d- people who do not like me are those people who are deeply committed to a really? religious orthodoxy or to a fundamentalist cause? right. Uh, open-minded people like me. Uh, people open-minded. that uh, yeah. Uh, troublemakers, uh, bohemians, artists. Uh
3: Would you consider yourself a bohemian?
2: Well, it's one phrase. I'm well, a hippie, I'm a beatnik, I'm a bohemian. I'm well, basically a, uh, uh, an outsider, uh, I'm a dissenting philosopher, and uh, there is there's always a, a good market for a good audience because uh, basically a lot of people out there want to be turned on and want to, uh, to, to learn how to operate mm-hmm. their brains.
3: Mm-hmm. What's been, has been the biggest lesson for Timothy Leary in your life?
2: Well, it's kind of foolish to be, you know, uh, I don't pretend to be a wise person. I don't no, give, I understand I don't, that. I have raised questions. I don't give answers. That's what Socrates told me. Right. But I will give you an answer here. We're playing the ping-pong game of an interview. Right. Let me see. Uh, the best tip I could give anyone, if you want to grow and learn how to become smarter, and enjoy life more and remain young, hang out with people that are smarter than you are and they can teach you something about your mind and your brain. And I'm proud to say that I hang out my friends every week. Uh-huh. When I look at my calendar, my appointment book, and I see the people that I hang out with...
3: Who sort of? Some of the people. Come I, I, on.
2: Well, uh, Sunday, for example, at my house in Beverly Hills, I, right. had, I had a turkey roast. I didn't do anything about the turkey. Mm-hmm. For 70 members of Alcor. Alcor is an organization uh, who believe people people are going to have their bodies or their brains frozen. You heard about of course, uh, crime. of course, of course. I'm a member. Of I crime. might
3: be one of them. Go ahead.
2: We had yeah, we had 65 or 70 people in my home. Uh-huh. We plan to meet each other maybe in 20 or 30 or 40 years because we, we, we we're going to be uh, brought uh-huh. back. By Is that new the tag? Yeah, that's the tag. That tells uh, uh, doctors uh, do not autopsy me, send me, freeze me. Really? It says freeze the autopsy. Uh-huh. Uh, so, uh, to give an example, now these people, these 60 people. By they by definition they they uh, they think for themselves right right uh, they're uh, they're I like that they're mavericks yeah and they're smart because you got to be smart you have to understand the physics and the uh, biology and the uh, and the memory so they're smart people uh, Monday nights I go every Monday night I go to uh, Easy TV and. We're assembling Easy TV.
3: What do you mean by assembling? You just you gather people around. People and come just in,
2: they pay, it, they buy, it, they get, and they come in. But uh, so uh, we're assembling crew. Normal? Yeah. Uh, for example, there's a there's a, uh, a play called Timothy and Charlie's, by me and Charlie Manson. It was written by Tim Reel, and they do incredible audio visuals. So uh-huh. they perform. What we're doing, Skippy, is we're merging uh-huh. at Easy TV every Monday night. Right. The power of electrons to create an environment, mm-hmm. and then out of the environment the, the lecturer comes uh-huh. or the actors in the play suddenly jump out of the, uh, the screen-like environment. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we are uh, we're developing experiments in what's called virtual reality. Right. And these young people, and we're, I'm the luckiest really, the man in the world. Every, every week I meet new uh, people that are on that frontier of electronic communication uh-huh. and uh, consciousness expansion and uh, intelligence increase. Uh-huh
3: what's been the hardest for Timothy Leary? What's been the hardest for you?
2: Well, I, I, su- I suffer, as we all do, about the, the incredible poverty and hunger and violence and military power. I, I mean, just when you read the, the Hindus are fighting the Muslims right. and the Catholics are fighting the uh, Protestants and mm-hmm. Belfast. The, the, the stupidity and the ignorance and the control of the of the military and the religious people uh-huh. that pains me very much and uh, as i think it does uh, See, most of us out there
3: you you're very concerned are not you uh, timothy you've been concerned i'm looking at you right now you're very concerned what's out there but is it are we doing the right thing right now with our military forces Who's we well the military force is going to that, yeah. you yeah. don't want to be in that okay military force the americas are we doing the right thing to to I know we should help them. It's a terrible thing. See, I'm not an expert but, on
2: that, but basically, I think I don't like the idea of having military people doing that because it's right, glorifying. Absolutely, military.
3: absolutely. And anything
2: that glorifies the military, you're going to pay for that. Right. You're going to pay for that in your budget. You're going to pay for that in bloodshed. So I basically, I've been to uh, West Point. Skippy, I was actually born at Were West Point. Were you in My, really my father point? was an army officer. I was born at West Point. Uh, like Is that York, one of the
3: schools you got kicked out of.
2: And I got kicked out of. No, I actually <laughs> resigned from. You West resigned. Point. I know the military mind very well, and the military mind uh, is not to be trusted.
3: I do too. I used to entertain 10, 15 years of my life all over Mar- and the yeah, world, yeah. Vietnam and everything. Mm-hmm. And I know the military, yeah. and I don't agree us yeah. military being there.
2: Hardliners, the hardliners in America, and the hardliners in Russia, and the hardliners in Somalia, they all want to uh-huh. take our, uh, our, our, our wealth and use it on weapons. So,
3: Some of your books. Tell me some of your books. That I have not read. I've got to be honest with you. How many books have you got out? I oh, it was about 30, 35. 35? Yeah. Really? What's the most popular of uh, flashbacks. the mirror? flashbacks? Flashbacks. How no. about the mirror? The mirror. Mind
2: Mirror was a computer game.
3: Tell me about That's the mind that. mirror.
2: Well, I've been working for the last 10 years on programs that allow the uh, person to turn the computer screen into a, like a t- mind phone. Right. And to put your thoughts there. Uh, five or six years ago, you could only do this with words, uh, alphanumerics, but now you can. Uh, Use CD-ROM and graphics. So, uh, uh-huh. the these new uh, image processors and computers are tools, right, to uh, learn how to operate your brain and how to uh, communicate more clearly and uh, uh-huh. become smarter.
3: Timothy the Leary, married?
2: Yeah, co- uh, children. At the present time, mar- I've been married. S- I've been married seven and a half times.
3: Seven, seven half and times. three quarters. times. And d-
2: I, I have a an addiction problem, Skippy. I'm addicted. You started to, marriage. to I'm addicted to marriage. I just love really? being married.
3: Okay. You're like Mickey you Rooney. Mickey Rooney to two. Yeah. Oh, and so
2: the cute. first two or three, four years, it's wonderful. But then you realize that you're dependent on it and that, uh, ah. you know, and then, uh, so uh, I have, uh, uh, I'm proud to say that uh, I have um, been lucky enough to have as my living companion, some of the smartest, most beautiful women in the world, and uh, every Shh. good thing that uh, has come from me, I yeah. owe to uh, my... Uh,
3: Barbara. Her name what? is Barbara? Barbara. Yeah, I met her in Rome years ago. She used to live in Rome.
2: She was an she, actress and a model there, yeah. She
3: was. Right? Yeah, I, fine, I didn't yeah. know that at the time, but beautiful lady. Very a, bright.
2: Very intelligent yeah, and elegant.
3: You like to be around intelligent, brilliant people. Do you ever well, be around dumb people sometimes, uh, Timothy? <laughs> Don't look at me now. <laughs> Have you ever been around people? who oh, you How do around, you handle that? How do yes,
2: you... I, I, I try what? to leave a trail of uh, fun and and joy, yeah. We all, as we go through life, you meet a lot of people right. that are not necessarily brain surgeons. But I try in any interaction to leave a little trail of sunshine, or you know, a little joke or something. Because I, uh, I basically believe in humanity. Yes. I believe in the human potential, and my life is about awakening or encouraging people to develop their potential.
3: Uh-huh. And uh, it's a. It's Do a you write profession. all night, Timothy? At night, uh, it I seems, seems like a you're a writer. I'm late. a late night person. Yeah, it seems like to me. Yeah. Um, Because I think you read a lot. You read a lot. Less and less. I I
2: don't read books as much anymore. I read uh, magazines, and I do a lot of uh, computer stuff. Is
3: that important for us to know what's out there in the world today? Uh, Or sometimes it confuses me when I turn the TV on and listen to the news. It's upsetting.
2: It's sad. Uh,
3: Sad. I I can't sleep at night sometimes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's why I don't want to listen to the news late, Mm -hmm. late night. Mm -hmm. Um, How do we handle that? How do we handle
2: that? Well, see, when people ask me questions like that, my answer is: think for yourself. Okay. Figure it out yourself. Think for yourself, because each don't person listen to is it. different.
3: Oh, I see. Yeah. I see. I see.
2: And you have to experiment with yourself and, uh, and listen to other people's ideas, but you basically you have to do it yourself. I see. Think for yourself.
3: Timothy Leary, what makes Timothy Leary happy? What does he? Are you a happy person?
2: I think I'm one of the happiest people who've ever lived. Really? Yes. Uh,
3: even throughout this whole, do you have any regrets in your life right now, Jimmy?
2: Yes, uh, that's a logical question. I regret uh, the fact that uh, I moved around so much and being in prison and being so controversial, it was very hard on my uh, children uh-huh. and it was very hard on uh, a couple of, uh, one of my marriages because at one point Richard Nixon called me the most dangerous man in America and I was being stopped and chased by the police everywhere I went for for, they were just... Well, my my basic crime was I was abusing the First Amendment by (laughs) by talking too much. I know. I understand. Uh, But we don't they uh, don't like us
3: to think for ourselves. When they start, we think for ourselves. We're dangerous.
2: It was very hard to answer your question uh, uh, on my children, to have their father, uh, you know, such Uh a hated person. My son, when he went to high school, uh, was actually beat up by uh, other kids because he was my uh, son. Yes. And this takes a tremendous. Of course, uh, uh, still, I'm a middle-class American, so I, I, it's not as bad as it is for most uh, children in the world. But uh, still, uh, uh, I regret that it was, my kind of life was hard on the uh, people that uh, were closest to me, and because uh, family and friendship uh, are the basic things. How and, uh, is he
3: handling it today,
2: your son? They're they're doing fine. They're doing fine. They're going to school. And I've got are five they? grandchildren, and I'm in really? touch with them all the time, and. Uh-huh. They go up and down, uh, uh-huh. and there's not as much enmity. As a matter of fact, people are not, uh, the government isn't going around, you know, uh, chasing me now, I hope. Yeah. But uh, things are, uh, yeah. Uh, Timothy it's going to be a great 1990s. Uh, I'll tell you a, a little story that was told to me. It's a time to rejoice, because uh, when you think about it, there are a lot of bad things happening. but We have a president, right, a vice president, and two dynamic You know, strong first ladies, all of whom are younger than old farts like Bob Dylan and Mick Jagger. (laughs) Isn't that something? It's all new, young generation. Uh Isn't it great? Which is post World War II, Uh and it's the '60s kids. And uh, so you like that? uh, I I don't. uh, Yeah, I'm not claiming that Clinton's going to be a great politician because it's a hopeless job. But the spirit of hope that Clinton and Bush. Yeah. And uh, yeah, there's yeah. a there is a all around the world there's you a sense, sense that of, I do too. It's a, a Kennedy for that. When Kennedy was elected in the '60s, he gave us hope too. Uh-huh. Actually, Kennedy was not a very good president. Yes, uh-huh. but still, the fact he was young and Jackie uh-huh. and it gave us sense right, of, right. of of uh, hope and vigor he, and courage and, and uh, he
3: might bring Dylan to the White House to play for him. Dylan? I like Dylan. Don't you like Dylan, Who? Bob Dylan, Bob? No, Dylan. Uh, Jimmy Carter did that. I, yeah. Jimmy.
2: The rumor is that. Um, that they might bring the Grateful Dead. <laughs> no, they're not going to bring Dylan. I don't think. No. no.
3: <laughs> Tell me about Timothy Leary's book and life story and movies. What's going to happen? Are they going to be doing that of of Timothy Leary?
2: I don't know. Who um, would you like to see uh, do that, your life well, story that's kind Timothy? of? A, that's
0: almost like a I, I don't, don't think like about. It. I don't it. think about that.
2: Either. I'd like Grace Jones to play me. How about Grace Jones?
0: And we're out. <laughs> <laughs> that was Hold on, a let me just wild laugh. <laughs> Wow interview. That guy. Skip low? Holy cow. His interviewing skills and word pronunciations were skewed at times. I he was a little all over the place, but really fun interview towards the end of Timothy Leary's life, talking about his life. It was cool to cap off the early interview and then to have him tell us personally about his life in an encapsulated way was really cool. He uh, talked about a lot of things that were current at the time, the computer revolution, the technological things that were happening. The video that he produced was pretty amazing. You know, 1990s, early nineties, very basic electronic music, I guess, which was very advanced at the time. I can't knock it, but also, the graphics were very dated, the eyes. Supposedly, it was supposed to induce a trance. I don't know. But I appreciate that he did the interview. It was very humorous. What did you think, Brent? How about Skip Lowe?
1: Oh, Skip Lowe. Was, is he gonna, <laughs> is he your new interview teacher? He unfortunately
0: or? has passed away.
1: Oh, right. You said that at the beginning. I'm sorry. Yes, no, that. it's okay. Yes, he has passed away. He's
0: on to the next um, dimension.
1: I want to know, so is Timothy Leary frozen?
0: I think they froze his head. I don't know if that actually happened. Maybe it did. I'm pretty sure his head's frozen.
1: His head. Just his head? Just
0: his head, yeah. Okay. It's out there somewhere.
1: It's out there somewhere. Um also I was thinking about uh what if Timothy Leary was your psychology teacher Thinking back at uh Well, Harvard and he, he was just like that would be really interesting. He
0: was just like the super cool guy back then. He wasn't psychedelically activated at that point in his life
1: right
0: it wasn't until he was actually at the age of 40 before he really figured out the whole lsd experience i've read a lot of his books high priest i really recommend that book he's got a a lot of great stories about his life in that but yeah it's uh it would have been cool because he was just like this cool guy
1: yeah he would have been a teacher a a great teacher a fun teacher a fun teacher just
0: like he taught us right now you know, we're a listening to these teacher. lectures. We're listening to these lectures to learn from them and to uh, gain something from Timothy Leary, who's not here, and even Skip Lowe, that funny, strange guy.
1: <laughs> yeah, and just uh, it's funny to hear him, you know, it was all Socrates' fault and kind of think of him <laughs> as a kid, like what his initial inspiration was. Um, That made him follow his golden thread. It's funny because
0: he also got the same charge as Socrates, which was corrupting the youth. He actually got charged with that, just like Socrates did. That's so
1: interesting. He manifested
0: that in his life. He's a very powerful guy, Timothy
1: Leary. Yeah. Maybe he was a reincarnation of Socrates. Who knows? I don't know. (laughs) Uh, it was interesting to see his like we were talking about the computer stuff that that was so current and new and like you can put this on a CD-ROM. It's, you know, this revolutionary thing. It would be interesting to see Timothy Leary if he could take a peek at today's technology and social media and all of, you know, the instant interaction, the instant interaction. You know, he was saying like, you should put your ideas on the screen and kind of. Wow! Just the exponential.
0: Uh, yeah, it really
1: happenings in uh, the computer world.
0: It really seemed to correlate well with the earlier lecture, and it was funny. He said even in that later interview that he didn't do lectures anymore. So it's yeah. kind of interesting how they kind of referenced each other. Well, I'm really glad you joined us, Bryn. Thank you so much for being here. Oh uh,
1: yeah, of course. That was super fun.
0: Yeah, it's good to tap into these people who have left this earth and they're still giving to us just a little bit more. We're having one little last hangout before the interviews kick back in. We'll have some interviews next week. You're going to love what we have coming up midnight on earth.